This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Biden administration is closing two interagency groups that were running the government's response to the SolarWinds and Microsoft Exchange cyber incidents. Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger says patch response and, quote, reduction in victims will let the government manage the incidents through what she calls standard incident management procedures. FCW reports Neuberger says a fast response from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and industry is a big factor in being able to shut down the groups. The State Department has a new diversity and inclusion office, or chief diversity and inclusion officer. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has named Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley to the new position. Blinken cited the Government Accountability Office's finding that racial and ethnic minorities are up to 29% less likely to get promotions than their white peers with similar qualifications in naming Winstanley to the new job. President Biden will appoint the Coast Guard's first ever female four-star admiral. Vice Admiral Linda Fagan will become the vice commandant of the Coast Guard if the Senate confirms her. She's commander of the Coast Guard Pacific region now. President Biden's new skinny budget request includes a fat chunk of change for IT modernization. The new budget includes $750 million for IT upgrades and another $500 million for the Technology Modernization Fund. Laura Christie is federal market analyst with Bloomberg Government, where she writes about the new budget request. Laura, I always enjoy reading your work because I learn data that I didn't know before. Here's the skinny budget data. President Biden's request came in at just 58 pages, and uh, President, former President Donald Trump's skinny budget was similar in length. These are usually, you write, 100 to 200 pages compared to the big stack they usually put out. That's why they're called skinny budgets. What do you see here that's most important for IT modernization across the government? So I think what's interesting about the budget is that there are five priorities and none of them are IT focused, but IT makes its way kind of all throughout the budget um, with a few different focuses for IT. We see cybersecurity come up most often, but then some stuff about data collection and analysis, um, some, some uh, telecommunication stuff, and then um, we see... Um, Sorry, what's the other one? <laughs> There's another focus in there that'll come to me, um, but you know, it, it kind of weaves its way throughout, and um, it, it's kind of an indication that they see IT kind of supporting all of these different initiatives that they have. Um, and I do expect, because of that, and because of some fo- some cybersecurity um, focuses throughout the Biden administration already, just in a couple months. Um, to see more money in IT and more money in cybersecurity. The focus on cyber wasn't surprising to a lot of budget and IT observers. Uh, the big money to the, uh, the uh, technology modernization fund was something that a lot of people talked about. What struck me the most, Laura, and you write about it in this work, is this IT reserve. Do we have any idea yet how that will work, or is the administration just asking for that money to kind of be there for the time being? So I'm hoping we'll get more information when we have the larger budget in a few weeks. Um, But so 
I thought originally it sounded a little bit like the technology modernization fund, but since they're requesting $500 million for that, I don't think that's exactly what it would be. So it could be a working capital fund, but maybe work a little differently than that fund. Um, and then I thought maybe it would be something like what FEMA has for emergencies, um, and it would be kind of a reserve in case there was an attack, but there's actually a request for $20 million for something um, that sounds like that as well. So I'm not exactly sure what it will look like. I do think because it's a reserve, it'll probably be multi-year money, um, but they don't offer any information other than, it seems like it'll be shared among different agencies and that um, they should use it for IT modernization, um, upgrading or securing legacy systems, and then for cybersecurity. So that's all we really know, not a whole lot. I take your point, and I think it's a good one, about the specifics that the skinny budget requests for various agencies being that they're not necessarily directly IT-specified, but IT underpins them. One of them, for example, online tools to communicate with the Internal Revenue Service to the tune of uh, $1.2 billion. And, and we don't know, you point out, whether that's the number for that particular function. We just know that the overall increase the administration wants for the Internal Revenue Service is uh, $1.2 billion above the levels for last year. Is that why the skinny budget is maybe just a marker and not the roadmap, and we need to wait for the roadmap in May to understand exactly what's coming and exactly what the administration intends? So I would say yes and no. Um, with that example, I do think that, that that extra money will go toward a variety of things, not just that um, IT kind of focus. Um, but some of it is very specific. For example, um, agriculture requested $65 million for a rural broadband e-connectivity program. Um, CDC, um, they proposed $153 million for CDC to modernize um, collection of public health data. Um, so we do know some of them that are very specific like that. We know that that's the amount that's supposed to go toward that. We know that there's hundred, I think it's $110 million um, an increase of $110 million requested for um, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Administration um, or agency, sorry, um, CISA. Um, they requested 110 additional dollars above the fiscal 2021 um, enacted budget for specifically cybersecurity and IT modernization. So we don't know exactly where that would go, um, within CISA, but we know kind of that specific information. Um, and we will get more information, especially when the IT budget is um, posted on itdashboard.gov, where we'll know the exact programs that those things will go toward. But I would say yes and no. There's some really specific information and then some much broader information where we know, you know, this much money is going to go toward a specific agency, but we don't know exactly how much will go toward the cybersecurity piece that they talk about. 30 seconds left, Laura. Is that what you'll look for when the big budget comes out is where the meat is on those bones? Absolutely. That's something that we look at every year. Um, you know, we, we analyze the data into a dashboard and then we write about kind of the bigger increases and what to expect in different markets like AI, cybersecurity, um, digital services um, to see where agencies might spend the, the bulk of their increases. Laura, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back. Thank you.
You can find a link to her work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, pumping up military readiness without a big funding boost. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the outside factors eating away at the Pentagon's buying power. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The new budget top line adds about $10 billion for the Pentagon, but experts say the increase will only cover the cost of inflation. Pay increases Congress is likely to mandate means less buying power next year for the Pentagon than this year. Frederico Bartels is senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. He's writing about the budget request in the Hill. Fred, thanks very much for coming back on the program. And that buying power issue is what jumped out at me as I read your piece. If the money goes up not enough to cover the increasing costs, that's the problem, isn't it, eating into that buying power? That's correct. And thanks for having me again, Francis. I really appreciate it. Uh, the main thing is not just uh, on pays. It's also on health care costs that have increased consistently throughout the years. In the last 20 years, DOD has experienced around a 1.2% inflation, and it is projected to experience around 22 for the next five years. So if you're not covering that, you need to find other resources. Uh, if you're not increasing the top line to cover that, you need to find other resources within your budget to cover those increases. And those usually will come from procurement, from O&M, especially O&M, because they are the most fungible account within DOD. Your piece is very fact-based. I'm going to go a little more existential then. If we're thinking about if, if we should be thinking about buying power and we're thinking about top line, it sounds like we also are thinking about inflation and maintaining pace with inflation broadly when we should be thinking about the inflation of the Pentagon's budget because of those special factors that you just mentioned. Am I on the right track? You are, and that's actually the next project that I want to tackle uh, here at the Heritage Foundation just to see where are the actual inflationary drives within the DOD budget? Uh, because it, it's one thing to just accept that as a fact of life, but, but that is honestly not good enough. We, we need to understand where that is coming from and how uh, both Congress and DOD can tackle those inflationary costs. Because if you just assume that we're going to inflate the budget through infinity and so be it, uh, there's going to be a point that there's not going to be enough resources uh, unless you keep running the printers. But then that's a, another fear that it goes to the existential points that you're mentioning. You mentioned O&M a moment ago, Fred, and you write in this piece, fastest way to reduce costs is to cut training and uh, defer maintenance. That sounds like that's what we were doing in the, the uh, mid-teens to late-teens that got us to the readiness problem that we had in that time frame. Is this, would this, do you think, put us back in that same situation? That's the, that's the one of the worst case scenarios. I mean, there are multiple worst case scenarios, especially when the budget hasn't been released yet. But uh, that is the easiest and most fungible way to go about finding resources within the DOD budget. Uh, O&M is a one-year uh, resource which expires at the end of the year. So all, if you need to change funds there, it's easier for you to either reduce uh, uh, an amount of training, reduce the, the time that you're going to spend on, on that training. And the other element is that you can push procurement into the future. So you would free those resources in the beginning of the year and 
promise that you're going to buy those fighter jets in the future, but that doesn't necessarily always happen, which goes to the readiness crisis that you mentioned around 2017 uh, when Secretary uh, Mattis was testifying about the, the crisis. When we talk about keeping pace with inflation, just just kind of trying to stay at par, what does that mean for modernization efforts? The Army has its big six. The Navy's talking about fleet increases and upgrades. Uh, the Air Force is looking at, at, at new airframes, new platforms. How much of those things continue to be possible when you've got to maintain the legacy stuff you already have, be ready to fight tonight, and also think about what the fight looks like 5, 10, 20 years down the road? Yeah, that's the main problem that you have. Because if you were going to fund the current plans, uh, even uh, Obama-era Deputy Secretary uh, of Defense Bob Work, he published a piece on War on the Rocks that mentions that that just to keep up with the current plans, you need a 3% increase year over year. Uh, so if you're not going to have that, you're going to have necessarily change and turn down those plans that are coming down the, the pike. So you will have uh, less resources to execute those plans into the future. You write in this piece, the Pentagon and the White House also need to drive down the cost of operating our armed forces and the cost of health care. The health care piece is separate. I want to focus on the operating the armed forces. Where's the cut? Where are the costs to cut in the budget in order to be able to achieve what you're proposing? Or is that more a rhetorical point that you're making, Fred? That is a, though, though, that's two things there. It's also one part in, in terms of future study. That's something that uh, I have to spend some time looking at it uh, to see where the there is actual f fat that is not marbling of the meat uh, that doesn't make the, the meat better uh, because there, there's always some excess capacity within DOD because you need uh, to be prepared when there is a contingency and you can't access that one thing that and if you only have one thing and you lose it then you're in bad shape uh, and the other thing is to see what are the proposals that they are going to move forward. Uh, one thing that I would like to see from them is actually request a, another background that has been uh, demanded by DOD for the last five to six years. Fred, what will you watch as the full budget comes out? Uh, I want to see how they define legacy. Uh, that is the, the, the main uh, point of discussion. Uh, anything that you can think of can be defined as a legacy platform or a legacy system. I personally still use a, a legacy iPhone 8, uh, and nothing that is made in any congressional district can ever be considered legacy for, for that lawmaker. So there is a very fine balance that they need to walk there to see what is actually legacy and how you define that. Fred Bartels, thanks very much for coming on. Great to have you back. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to his piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, could teleworking cut your pay? Straight ahead on Government Matters, what happens to your locality pay when you work somewhere else full time? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Welcome back. The Associate Director for Employee Services at the Office of Personnel Management, Rob Shriver, says the agency will give out new guidance on locality pay soon. The agency's looking at how to pay people who work remotely and telework full-time. 
John O'Din is senior strategist at Civic Actions. He's former DevOps engineer at the U.S. Digital Service. John, welcome back. It's good to see you again. What does long-term remote work potentially mean for locality pay, and what does it potentially mean to the employees who might be under a different pay schedule than they are today? Uh, good morning. Nice to see you again. Um, uh, there's actually quite a few changes here. Uh, just to give context, so locality pay is this whole idea that if you go to an office for work, you must live somewhere near that office. So you find people living within commute range of a set of bricks somewhere. So then locality pay is actually based on, in a lot of cases, the location of the office, not the location of the human. And so that's item one. That changes when you say someone goes to full-time telework. So if you have a building here and the employee can live somewhere else, what happens there? That's item, that's one part. And it gets confused because you it comes from the idea of having two offices in different locations. And in each case, the human lives within commute range of that. Um, I will say there's other things like whether you count cost of living to be uh, around just the cost of a house or a home. Or do you count cost of living to also include things like how much does medical insurance cost in this location because there's only one provider versus insurance in other locations? Um, how much does it cost to get to a hospital? Like is it a five minute ride or is it a three hour medic transport? So things like this make those numbers really, really tricky to calculate. There's another um, wrinkle here, John, that I didn't hmm. know before I read the story in FCW and it's this. OPM distinguishes between telework, where employees can work away from the office but come in a certain number of times per pay period, and remote work, where an employee works from a completely different geographic location and doesn't come into the office regularly or at all. Mm -hmm. That seems mm -hmm. to me to be the conundrum that OPM is in that gets at the point that you made a moment ago about what stuff costs different places. Are they maybe splitting the hair too thinly there, or is that a legitimate difference from the view of the employee who's thinking about where he or she lives? Um, this is, it's, it's sort of splitting the hairs, but actually what we're doing here is we're uncovering a lot of you know, what I call legacy paperwork, for lack of a better way of describing it. We've been having people traditionally live near an office and come to an office for a hundred or so years. Um, and that's been the way it always was. Now what we're doing is we're discovering people could live further away and come in just on certain, you know, certain low cadences. As you said, telework could come in one day a month or one day per pay cycle or something like that. Um, when someone goes to, they don't come into the office at all, they could live beyond reasonable commute range from that physical building. There's still restrictions, like you may still have nationality, citizenship restrictions, you might have um, access to data restrictions means you have to stay inside your jurisdiction. Um, that I've hit a few cases like that I've worked on. Um, these are all things that nobody really worked through all the consequences of this before because you had to come to the office. Now that's changing. And I think it's one of the few things I think COVID is surfacing a lot of these hidden uh, loose ends that we sort of didn't really pay attention to before. Another element that is uh, surfacing as a result of what you're talking about that, uh, and something else that mm. you're considering is what does mm. this mean for the engagement piece? Uh, Zoom burnout is something I'm seeing tons oh. of articles, tons of coverage about. What happens to new employees yeah. who don't get the benefit of being with John for a certain period of time, even if it's just at the water cooler or whatever? 
all of that, what does that mean potentially for the culture of some of these organizations, John? Sure. Um, this is actually the hard part. This is where I spent a lot of my time. It's, you know, I wrote a book about it. Um, so this is where people don't get to actually meet in human contact. And it's one of the things that's important when you see people talking about wanting to go back to the office or once we're all vaccinated, we can go back to the office and those all those topics. Uh, what's actually coming up is humans miss their co-working humans. Uh, we're a social species. We like talking to each other. We like the idea to go meet someone, make jokes sitting beside someone at a meeting room table or chit-chat going down the corridor, get a cup of coffee, um, have lunch with somebody. This is a very human thing. And for most people, you spend more of your waking day with your co-workers than you do with your family. So to suddenly lose all that is really hard. Um, and that's true, not just in government, that's true in private industry everywhere. Uh, you can, uh, the way I've seen work most effectively for this, which I counsel, counsel people on, is to look at, you know, like Zoom burn and uh, Zoom fatigue, and I, you know, my apologies to Zoom, uh, people rarely say this about other products, it's about video overload, really. Um, they don't have... Um, People tend to look at the technology as the problem, but they don't look at what caused someone to sit in eight hours of meetings all day. That's actually a management leadership problem. It's not a technology problem. How you organize, how you communicate internally in the organization is actually how you find out we had eight hours of status meetings this week, or sorry, eight hours of status meetings this day, which meant you didn't have time to do anything else. And by the way, the last thing you want to do is get on a social chit chat video call with somebody which means you don't have contact and you start losing contact with people, which means you start losing trust. John, a lot That's more I'd like to really cover, stuff. but unfortunately we're out of time. Thanks yeah. very much for joining me today. I appreciate having you back. Don't forget if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show. When you sign up for our daily program guide, just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. Back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? 
It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that, uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they're, 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 they were basically asking for like-for-like -like services. And that wasn't really a, uh, a plan for transforming. And it didn't, the, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the, the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies, and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies 
and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.